You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 342 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. On July 1st, 1863, the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, 15-year-old Tilly Pierce's parents sent her off to what they believed would be a refuge just south of town, the Jacob Weikert Farm on the Tawny Town Road located behind the round tops. After arriving at the farm, Tilly watched as Union soldiers marched by up the road toward town. She realized she wanted to do more than watch, so she said, Obtaining a bucket, I hastened to the spring, and there, with others, carried water to the moving column until the spring was empty. We then went to the pump standing on the south side of the house and supplied water from it. Tilly would remember how, later on the afternoon of the 1st, quote, Some of the wounded from the field of battle began to arrive where I was staying. They reported hard fighting, many wounded and killed, and were afraid our troops would be defeated and perhaps routed. The first wounded soldier whom I met had his thumb tied up. This I thought was dreadful, and told him so. Oh, said he, this is nothing. You'll see worse than this before long. Oh, I hope not, I innocently replied. Soon two officers carrying their arms and slings made their appearance, and I more fully began to realize that something terrible had taken place. Now the wounded began to come in greater numbers, some limping, some with their heads and arms in bandages, some crawling, others carried on stretchers or brought in ambulances. Suffering, cast down and dejected, it was a truly pitiable gathering. Before night, the barn was filled with the shattered and dying heroes of this day's struggle. That evening, Becky Weikert and I went out to the barn to see what was transpiring there. Nothing before in my experience had ever paralleled the sight we then and there beheld. There were groaning and crying. The struggling and dying crowded side by side, while attendants sought to aid and relieve them as best they could. We were so overcome by the sad and awful spectacle that we hastened back to the house, weeping bitterly. The next day, July 2nd, 
the second day of the battle, Tilly again watched the hustle and bustle on the Tawny Town Road, taking special note of the arrival of the guns and wagons of the Army of the Potomac's Artillery Reserve, as well as the marching Union infantry who were still arriving on the battlefield. Quote, About ten o'clock many pieces of artillery and large ammunition trains came up, filling the open space to the east of us. Regiment after regiment continued to press forward. I soon engaged in the occupation of the previous day, that of carrying water to the soldiers as they passed. Tilly admitted that her thoughts often anxiously turned to her family, who were still in town, even though she realized that, quote, it was impossible in the present state of affairs to expect any tidings from them. Tilly's concern was justified. Some portions of the enemy-occupied town were part of the Confederate battle lines. Streets were barricaded, and rebel sharpshooters used the upstairs windows of some houses to engage in harassing the Federals on Cemetery Hill, and Union sharpshooters replied in kind. Teenager Albertus McCreary found it all most unwelcome. Quote, Our house stood on the corner of Baltimore and High Streets, and we did not dare to look out the windows on the Baltimore Street side. Sharpshooters from Cemetery Hill were watching all the houses for Confederate sharpshooters, and from that distance they could not distinguish citizen from soldier. The dangers and perils of the morning were ignored by Sarah Broadhead's husband, who, she said, quote, went to the garden and picked a mess of beans, though stray firing was going on all the time, and bullets from sharpshooters or others whizzed about his head in a way I would not have liked. However, he persevered until he picked them all, for he declared the rebels should not have won. For others in town, there was a new activity to observe, the building of barricades. Henry Jacobs watched rebel soldiers tear down a stone wall opposite his home to get material for a barrier they spread across the street. He wrote that, quote, It lay there, a spectacle of ruin and promise of destruction, all day. Near Charlie McCurdy's house, the Confederates used wagons, boxes and barrels to create a defensive choke point in the street that was soon being put to a use its builders hadn't anticipated. McCurdy remembered how, quote, it only served as a source of entertainment for small boys who found a new game in climbing over the obstruction. Meanwhile, that second morning of the battle, 43-year-old Harriet Blaley, on her farm northwest of Gettysburg, heard that many wounded Union soldiers still lay unattended on the fields where the fighting was heaviest the day before, there north and west of town, and she decided to do something about it. She later said, quote, I packed a market basket full of bread and butter and wine, old linen and bandages and pins, and mounting a family horse that had been blind for several years, with my niece behind me, I started towards the town and the scene of the first day's battle. When nearing the field of battle, as far as I could see, there were men, living and dead, and horses, and guns, and cannon, and confusion everywhere. 
Getting down into the valley, I found our wounded lying in the broiling sun, where they had lain for twenty-four hours with no food and no water. A zigzag fence was standing on the side of the road, and in its angles were many who had taken shelter from the sun and to avoid being trampled on. The very worst needed a surgeon's care, but while my niece gave food to the hungry and wine to the faint, I looked after the wounds. I would cut open a trouser leg or coat sleeve until I found the wound and then put on a fresh bandage. One of the first I touched was a poor fellow badly hurt in the back. I cut open his coat from the waist up and found that the cloth that he had put on the wound had become so dry with clotted blood that I could not loosen it and had no water. A wounded comrade lying near said, Madam, there's a little tea in my canteen that I have been saving. Maybe you can loosen it with that. I had been hearing the pitiful cry of water, water, all around me, and when I found that these men had none for twenty-four hours, I rose up in my wrath, and turning to the rebels who were walking around me, I said, Is it possible that none of you will bring water to these poor fellows? An officer heard me, and finding that what I said was true, he ordered a lot of men to bring all that was necessary. They said that the wells at the nearest houses were pumped out, but I directed them where to find a good spring. Soon we had plenty of water. On my way home I saw a field full of men whom I found to be prisoners and that they expected to start south any hour. They swarmed around me like bees, begging me to take charge of letters. When I got home I found my family very anxious about me. Mrs. Blaley's family were not the only anxious ones on that Thursday. All of the civilians living in and around Gettysburg were holding their breath, waiting for the battle to resume. In her diary, Jane Smith recorded, quote, Comparative quiet along both lines this morning. The day wears on, still only skirmishing. As y'all recall, we used the last show to talk about Robert E. Lee's plans for renewing the battle that had started the previous day. On July 2nd, here at Gettysburg, Lee apparently hoped to replicate his success at Chancellorsville, where, just a few months before, the Confederates had achieved some rather spectacular results by means of a surprise assault on a vulnerable federal flank. At Chancellorsville, Stonewall Jackson had led a large column on a long, roundabout march through woods and thickets to descend like a thunderbolt on the vulnerable right flank of the Union line. Though Jackson was in his grave now, Lee set about to reproduce the smashing flank attack at Chancellorsville here at Gettysburg. The plan that Lee settled upon called for Ewell's Corps to the north to make a diversion against Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, with the option to convert it to a real attack should the opportunity arise, while Longstreet would deliver the decisive blow after completing a march around to the southern end of the battlefield that would place his troops on the seemingly vulnerable Union left flank. Lee determined the location of that flank by consulting with Captain Samuel R. Johnston of his staff, 
who had scouted out the terrain on the Union left in an early morning ride. From the Federal position on Cemetery Hill, two lower ridges ran south and southwest. The one to the south, Cemetery Ridge, ran for about a mile until it gradually lost itself in the rolling ground there. Just a bit farther south lay two hills, Little Round Top and Big Round Top. The latter was heavily wooded, but the rocky west face of Little Round Top had been cleared of trees. From Cemetery Hill, the southwest ridge, nameless and somewhat less defined, lay roughly along the course of the Emmitsburg Road as it angled southwest out of Gettysburg for about a mile or so. South of this ridge, and thus directly west of Little Round Top, lay rugged Hawks Ridge. Steeper and higher than either Cemetery Ridge, or the one that carried the Emmitsburg Road, Hawks Ridge was nonetheless lower than Little Round Top. It ran north-south, and terminated at its south end in a jumble of boulders and rock outcroppings known locally as Devil's Den. Johnston reported that he and another officer, Major Clark of Longstreet's staff, along with several enlisted escorts, had made their way to Little Round Top. As we talked about in the last show, how they might have done this without encountering or even seeing any of the numerous federal troops that were in the area remains a mystery to this day. After last week's show, some of you asked what Major Clark had to say about all of this afterward, since Johnston's report turned into such a hotly debated topic in later years. But apparently Clark never gave a detailed account of what happened on that fateful scouting expedition, or at least no such account has come to light. So he's no help in trying to figure out just where they went that morning. As we said, though, wherever they went, it almost certainly wasn't up Little Round Top. Robert E. Lee himself was surprised at Johnston's report. Did you get there, he asked, pointing at Little Round Top on the map he and Johnston were studying, and Johnston assured Lee he had. Largely on the basis of Johnston's report and his own observations from Seminary Ridge, Lee seems to have concluded that the Union line ran along the Emmitsburg Road for a short distance, probably no farther south than the Daniel Klingel farm, then ended up in the air. Longstreet's flanking column thus need only march a few miles southward on the west side of Seminary Ridge, staying out of sight of the enemy, then cross over to the east side of Seminary Ridge before sweeping up the Emmitsburg Road, smashing the vulnerable Union left flank and rolling up the enemy line from south to north as they went. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Seven of the 11 brigades in Longstreet's Corps were on hand before mid-morning on July 2nd, having marched across South Mountain the day before, camped near Marsh Creek in the wee hours, and come the four or five remaining miles to the battlefield early on the 2nd. Only George Pickett's division was absent. Pickett's men, three brigades of Virginians, were marching from Chambersburg and couldn't possibly be available for fighting on July 2nd. Longstreet didn't like the idea of going into battle without Pickett. It was, he famously told another of his division commanders, John B. Hood, like going into battle, quote, with one boot off. But Robert E. Lee wasn't going to be put off by Longstreet's reluctance to fight without Pickett being present. Instead, Lee placed at Longstreet's disposal Major General Richard Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's Corps. Anderson's troops were the only one of Hill's divisions to not see combat on July 1st. Besides that, Anderson and his men were familiar with Longstreet, to whose corps they had belonged up until the recent reorganization of the Army of Northern Virginia. Anderson's five brigades would bring the strength of Longstreet's attack on the Union left up to 12 brigades, one more than the pre-battle full-strength total of his corps. The 12th Brigade, however, hadn't arrived yet by the time Robert E. Lee had settled on his plan of attack. This was a Vanderlaw's Brigade of Hood's division, which was pressing toward Gettysburg by a remarkable 24-mile forced march that had started shortly after 2 a.m. Private W.C. Ward of the 4th Alabama remembered it as, quote, the most fatiguing march of the war, end quote. Indeed, the rising sun on the morning of July 2nd illumined the Alabamans tramping over South Mountain and heading down toward Cashtown. The brigade wouldn't reach Gettysburg until shortly before noon, but Longstreet wanted to wait to get things started until Law's men arrived on the scene. Although there seems little good reason for doing so, Robert E. Lee agreed to Longstreet's request to delay the start of his flanking march until Law's Alabamans arrived. By Longstreet's account, quote, General Lee assented. We waited about 40 minutes for those troops, end quote. At some point during the delay, Longstreet waved over Colonel E.P. Alexander, who, at Longstreet's direction, was operating as the 1st Corps Artillery Chief. Porter Alexander wasn't actually the 1st Corps Artillery Chief, but 
Well, Longstreet trusted in Alexander's ability and judgment more than he did that of the actual Corps artillery chief. So anyway, Alexander was the man as far as Longstreet was concerned. In any case, Alexander later wrote, quote, My recollection is that a lot of our infantry was halted not far off, and some of their generals were around, and quite a lot of staff officers. In General Lee's presence, Longstreet pointed out the enemy's positions and said that we would attack his left flank. End quote. Longstreet then suggested Alexander set out at once to get an idea of the ground and bring his guns forward. When Law's exhausted Alabamans marched up just before noon, they were given little time to rest since their arrival was the signal for Longstreet to begin his flank march. Robert E. Lee's attack plan, which had taken much of the morning to fully develop, was at last set in motion, but things would very quickly start to go wrong for the Confederates. When Longstreet's flank march started off, Hood's troops followed McClaw's men while Alexander's guns preceded the infantry columns. Just as it was with Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville, the element of surprise was a critical component in Lee's plan for Longstreet's attack on the Union flank here at Gettysburg. If Longstreet's assault was to have the desired shock effect once it kicked off, it was essential that the rebels not be spotted moving into position. Not long after starting out, Alexander came to an open rise of ground, and he realized that if his guns continued up and over this exposed spot, they would be in full view of the observant Federal signalman over across the way on Little Round Top. However, the capable colonel had little problem picking a nearby route that would bypass the open patch of ground. Having lost but little time on the short detour, and having arrived at his destination unseen by the enemy, Alexander halted his guns, not far below the point where Pitzer's Run branched northward from Willoughby Run. After seeing to the parking of his batteries, he retraced his route until he found the rebel infantry, McClaw's men leading, immobilized just short of the exposed clearing. Alexander would claim that he pointed out the solution to the problem, the detour that his guns had taken, to some staff officers, but he apparently never spoke to either McClaws or Longstreet about it before he went off again. When Lafayette McClaws came up and discovered why his column had ground to a halt, he reportedly flew into a rage. The brigadier was, according to one man, quote, saying things I would not like my grandson to repeat, end quote. McClaws was apparently quite aggravated that Captain Johnston, who Robert E. Lee had assigned to accompany the column, hadn't known that any troops crossing this open spot would be visible to the enemy on Little Round Top. But Johnston himself seemed to think that Lee had attached him to the column in a solely advisory capacity, and that it wasn't his duty to actually guide the troops' march to their destination. At any rate, Johnston was as surprised as anyone when McClaw's column ground to a halt before the clearing. 
When Longstreet came up to find out what had caused the stoppage, he found McClaws and Johnston and asked, What is the matter? An intensely irritated McClaws replied, Ride with me, and I will show you that we can't go on this route, according to instructions, without being seen by the enemy. When the two generals rode forward, Longstreet saw plainly that any troops crossing the rise would be in full view of the enemy observation post on Little Round Top, from which signal flags could be seen waving. Old Pete said, Why, this won't do. Is there no way to avoid it? Even though Porter Alexander's short detour was nearby, McClaws remained unaware of it, and so told Longstreet there was no way to bypass the open spot. Longstreet realized there was nothing for it but to turn around, to march his entire column back to the last crossroads and find an alternate route, one that would keep the troops out of sight of the enemy. But having decided to backtrack, Longstreet now had another decision to make, since there were two ways to go about this. One, the entire column could just about face and backtrack, but this would mean that Hood's troops would now be leading and McClaw's men would be bringing up the rear. The second option was to countermarch, which required something more complicated. This would require Hood and McClaw's to switch places so that the head of McClaw's column would still be in the lead and the rear of Hood's column would still, well, be in the rear. This would be tedious and time-consuming involving McClaws and then Hood's divisions turning around company by company, regiment by regiment, brigade by brigade, and passing to the rear. Longstreet chose to countermarch, even though it would be tedious and time-consuming, because he wanted McClaws' division to remain in the lead. And Lafayette McClaws wanted this too, since he believed that his division had been specifically designated by Robert E. Lee to lead the Confederate attack on the Union left flank. Executing the order to countermarch wasn't helped by the fact that Hood's leading units had piled into the rear of McClaw's stopped column, so that it took some little time to get the mess sorted out and the men moved back. In the end, all of this took time, when time is the most precious commodity on a battlefield. Looking back on this countermarch on the afternoon of July 2nd, Porter Alexander, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, would later note, quote, There is no telling the value of the hours which were lost. The countermarch pulled Longstreet's column back to the Black Horse Tavern and back up the Fairfield Road for half a mile until the entire column, with McClaws still in the lead, found a farm lane that led to the right and allowed the Confederates to regain their original route on the far side of the all-too-revealing open rise of ground. Two miles farther on, they passed a schoolhouse and turned eastward on the Millerstown Road until they reached the western slope of Seminary Ridge, a little more than 600 yards from the Emmitsburg Road. As the head of McClaw's column approached this point, James Longstreet rode up and asked Lafayette McClaws 
how he planned to deploy his division. McClaws replied, This will be determined when I can see what is in my front. Longstreet answered, There is nothing in your front. You will be entirely on the flank of the enemy. Longstreet then galloped off to confer with Hood. It wasn't until about 3.30 that afternoon that the head of McClaw's divisional column at last neared its jumping-off point for the attack. Three and a half hours had passed since they first set off on a march that should have taken about half that time. As McClaws rode forward and reached the edge of the woods on the west slope of Seminary Ridge, what he expected to see was a broad and unoccupied vista leading out to the Emmitsburg Road, which his battle lines would shortly deploy across and advance up, smashing into the vulnerable Union left flank. But instead, an unexpected view greeted Lafayette McClaws. If he had found the countermarch frustrating, then a thoroughly exasperated McClaws now discovered that his problems were only just beginning. McClaws later wrote that, quote, The view astonished me, as the enemy was massed in my front and extended to my right and left as far as I could see. End quote. McClaws was stunned, to say the least. He wasn't on the Union left, as he had been told and as he had expected. He was, instead, directly opposite a sizable force of Federal infantry and artillery positioned 600 yards to his front, in and around the Sherfee Peach Orchard, with their lines running both north along the Emmitsburg Road and southeasterly, it appeared, all the way to Little Round Top. That meant the enemy wasn't holding the position Robert E. Lee had envisioned when he planned his attack and now it was readily apparent to McClaws that Lee's plan was based entirely on a false understanding of the federal position. The large federal force deployed along the Emmitsburg Road was Dan Sickles' Third Corps, and although it probably wouldn't have been much consolation to Lafayette McClaws even had he known it, but as we'll see next time, the Third Corps' presence there was almost as unpleasant a surprise to George Meade as it was to McClaws. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, The Second Day by Harry W. Fans. We'll also remind you that a previous book recommendation was Fans's Gettysburg the first day. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. So before we get any farther along here at the end of the episode, we should say that with Christmas coming up this week, we may or may not have a new show out next weekend. That pretty much covers all the possibilities. What? We may or may not have a new episode out next weekend. Stay tuned. Rich. <laughs> anyway, as we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Jackson, Marika, Tammy, Andrew, Uglesha, and Kelly. And thanks to Doug D. for his donation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 
1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time. Whenever that might be. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. You can't say Merry Christmas. We'll have to edit that out. Rich. (laughs) 